You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief live on 101.9 FM in Johannesburg and broadcasting worldwide on highfm.com. Always a treat for me to be joined by the fearless investigative journalist and author Karen Dolly, who wrote an incredible book about the Cape Town underworld known as The Enforcers and has now written a book with the scary name To the Wolves, How Traitor Cops Crafted South Africa's Underworld. Karen, as always, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. That was a lovely introduction, but I'm not so sure about fearless. <laughs> Karen, you have to be fearless to, to do the kind of investigative reporting and writing that you've done over the years. And it's something that we all appreciate because at least it brings to the public the reality of what's actually going on. Before we chat about your most recent book, To the Wolves, I want to chat a little bit about The Enforcers. Remind our listeners what that book was about, and then just let me know whether this new book is a sequel, a continuation from that, and what the links are between the two books. Okay, well, The Enforcers Inside Cape Town's Deadly Nightclub Battles really analyzed and looked into so-called bouncer wars that have been going on since the 1980s, 1990s, specifically focused around Cape Town's nightlife. So we had a figure, Cyril Beaker, who was known as dominating that sector back in the 90s, but some police officers pointed to him as a front for apartheid era cops. So ever since then, and he was murdered in 2011, we've seen ebbs and flows, almost like a continuous tug of war between different groupings vying for control of the lucrative nightclub security industry. And the initial book focused on the suspects, and also the actual bouncer so-called wars. This book looks at the same theme, but from a different perspective. So what we've seen coming through in the first book and since about 2017 is consistent claims against and among cops that they are actually colluding with criminals. So this book sort of looks at the same subject matter from a different angle. It's looking at it from the police collusion angle. I must be honest with you. When I saw the cover of your new book, I I was very excited to chat to you about it. But when I read the byline, how traitor cops crafted South Africa's underworld, it, it brought up a set of mixed emotions for me. The firstly being that we have traitor cops amongst us and they've contributed so greatly to this violence that we've experienced throughout South Africa. And then more importantly, my concern was, do honest cops have the courage to come forward? And were you able to find cops that were willing to talk to you about the problem of the traitor cops that are amongst them? Well, what I've done, Chad, is I've used basically, I don't want to sound super fancy when saying this, but a career's worth of research. So I've gone far back. I've looked back. I've looked over the years um, I've used court documents, and what I've found is that because this is about character assassination within the police service, it's exceptionally difficult to pick out who's telling the truth. And perhaps that's the mastery underlying a smear campaign in that there is no tangible weapon. You can't really pinpoint who is good, who is bad. And unfortunately, I mean, it's horrific that that taints the police service, but I'm very confident that they are good, hardworking, decent, honest officers. It's just that 
because of this constant crossfire of claims and counterclaims, it's up to us individually to decide who fits into which category, which is unfair. It is unfair on a lot of police officers that have tried their, their utmost that there are these elements within the police that have brought about a massive problem within the public perception that the majority of police officers may be corrupt, whereas, in fact, it's the other way around. It's a minority that have given the police such a terrible name. We're chatting to Karen Dolly. She's the author of To the Wolves, How Traitor Cops Crafted South Africa's Underworld. We're going to be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today I'm chatting to Karen Dolly, a very well-known investigative journalist and author of a book, The Enforcers, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It, it brought about a lot of insight as into what was transpiring in terms of the Cape underworld the past few decades. And we see the same names pop up time and time again. And last week, an arrest that has been anticipated for absolute months, um, maybe even years, came about. And that was the arrest of Nafis Modak, who appeared in court today and will be back in court on Friday. Um, and the, 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 the MPA have, had, have advised that it looks as if more charges will be brought against him. Karen, were you at all surprised by the arrest last week? I wasn't. And the reason I wasn't is because since December, we've seen an extreme clampdown by the police on so-called underworld suspects. And there have been murmurings here and there, this could happen, that could happen. I'm not saying I was aware that he would be arrested for sure, but there were murmurings of this person could be arrested, that could happen next. Also, cops being arrested, that's another thing that's been mentioned quite a bit. Karen, does it perturb you that it took police officers from Johannesburg to go down to Cape Town to take over some of these dockets for us to have seen this change in attitude since, let's say, October last year um, following the, the, the murder of Kinnear, that we now suddenly seem to be seeing a momentum in respect of arrests and perhaps prosecutions in terms of the Cape Town underworld? It's not necessarily surprising if you've been following what's been happening within the police in the Western Cape over, let's say, about three years particularly and it's not limited to that three-year period. There have been lots of claims, lots of infighting amongst police officers, and this has surfaced and bubbled over into the public sphere. So it makes a lot of sense and perhaps instills a bit of confidence that it was a team externally of the Western Cape, given the mass and sheer volume of claims against police officers in the province. And what do you think of the presence of the acting commissioner, um, General Patakile, together with the Minister of Police, in court today. Do you think they're trying to send a message? can only assume so. Like, we don't see the police minister in the Cape Town Magistrates Court very often. And it does look like they're saying, look, we're serious about this this time. We hope that is the case. I know when Mr. Modak was initially arrested, I think in late 2017, in a big extortion case, we also had three of the province's top police officers, Peter Jacobs, who up until recently was crime intelligence head, um, Andre Lincoln, who now heads the anti-gang unit, and Jeremy Veri, who heads the detectives in the province. So each time he's been arrested in a big case, there has been a slightly unusual 
police presence. So in respect to what we've seen in the past where there's been um, these, these senior police officers attending, what is the energy like on the ground? Do you, do you think that perhaps a corner has been turned and we're going to see more high-profile arrests leading to prosecutions? I think we'll see more arrests in terms of leading to prosecutions. These court cases swing in so many ways. Even the bail applications are quite mind-blowing. So I wouldn't want to hazard a guess or think about that yet. But in terms of more arrests, I'm pretty certain we'll see more people taken into custody. So Karen, you're from the Western Cape and you've met with victims um, fa- um, families of victims, people that have been impacted directly as a result of assaults, attempted murders, extortions, and of course murders. What is the general feeling amongst the community in Cape Town when it comes to the prosecution of, of gang leaders? Are they generally confident? Because we have seen some senior gang leaders in the past prosecuted, but this particular ongoing war seems to have had no end. Well, it's very difficult to answer your question, Chad, because there are lots of people who are very keen to see these suspects jailed. Um, I'm not saying they're guilty, but there are lots of people who are keen to see prosecutions in terms of organized crime cases. In that same vein, we've also, when, I don't know if you recall if you watched um, Rashid Stahi's funeral, there was a lot of, when he's Casket or coffin was driven through Mannenberg, the gang hotspot. There seemed to be a lot of support for him. So there's almost a split and a divide because in the past in Cape Town, we have seen suspects of crime handing out food parcels, in one case handing out cash. And these are two people who, who desperately need that. So there is a split in that some people could view suspects as saviors as opposed to Criminals, yeah. So I spoke about that extensively after the murder of Teddy Mafia in Durban. I call it the Robin Hood phenomena, where you've got these high-profile um, organized crime figures, maybe we should call them alleged organized crime figures, who are very big when it comes to distribution of food in their communities, etc., yet conversely are suspected of supplying drugs into those very same communities that have led to the poverty. A question I'd like to ask you is it's, it's all fair and well for us to watch the television, listen to the radio, read the newspaper articles, and get our hands on well-researched books such as yourselves. But we don't get to experience what the people are feeling on the ground because we don't get to go into those communities. Can you give our listeners a, a, a bit of an understanding of what damage has been done generationally to the people that are in the midst of these gang wars that are caught in the crossfires? Absolutely. One example that will always stand out to me is um, previously I would go into Mannenberg quite often because there was the I mean, there was slash is a lot of gang shootings there. And I recall once um, I was with a photographer and he was driving and these people flagged us down and said, stop, stop. And we're like, what's going on? And then lots of people running forward. They were running towards a shooting to see what's happening. Some people have become so desensitized to violence that it is the norm to them. And I mean, getting caught in crossfire is unbelievably easy. We hear about children being wounded, children being murdered. We hear about that so often in the Western Cape. And because violence 
in certain areas, and I'm not, I, I hate generalizing, but it has become the norm. It's absolutely heartbreaking, and it can't just because of this gangsters, and there has to be certain social issues that need to be addressed if we're going to see a change um, in these gang-infested areas. What needs to be done at, at government level to, to address the, the underlying issues of, of poverty and unemployment? Because we can't just rely on these arrests because you see one leader gets taken into custody, another leader will pop up. One leader gets assassinated, another leader pops up. What, what kind of critical changes do we need to see from both national, provincial, and municipal government? Firstly, aside from critical changes, we need them to work together. I think if you follow the Western Cape situation, there's often, for lack of a better word, bickering, because the DA run versus ANC run national. And it's such a difficult and such an immense question you ask, like what can be done? And I think this book really goes into one of the things that need needs to be done is that we need to rid the police service of corrupt cops. How do we do that? I don't think we can rely on the state to do that because if you look at the state of the police service and the amount of infighting at the moment, I mean, it's up to us, each one of us, to apply pressure where necessary to get the rotten apples out of the system. And, I mean, that's just take looking at this from the top down um, from bottom up, uh, I would have to think about that. And, I mean, I don't think I'd be able to answer you within 40 minutes once I came up with the answer. Can I ask you this? In respect of police members that are seen to be corrupt or complaints against police officers, from a national policing perspective, we have BIPED. From the Hawks perspective, we have the office of the DPCI judge. And the Western Cape is unique in that they were the very first province to establish an office for the police ombudsman to look at complaints. Has that worked? Have people come forward and have you seen any changes as a result of a provincial ombudsman? I haven't looked into that, Chad. I don't know if it's worked. I mean, we, and this is almost where this whole situation almost flips over. It's not just the public lodging complaints against the police anymore. We've got police officers lodging complaints against police officers. So it's almost like a stack of problems. As soon as you look at the one, you realize it leads to another. And I think to divert my answer or sort of to shift away from your question, it's even if we do have a system in place, there is still a broader overarching problem. And I think this is a symptom of state capture. And often when we think state capture, we think ESCOM, PRASA, etc. But policing and organized crime and everything in between that is a huge, thick level of state capture. You're 100% correct with that. We've seen that with regards to senior appointments that were made by certain leadership, both within the police ministry as well as within the presidency. We've seen it with regards to appointments within the National Prosecuting Authority by ministers in the in the Justice and Constitutional Development Cluster as well as in the presidency once again. But one thing I want to take away from what you just said a few minutes ago is the fact that we're now seeing police officers making complaints about police officers. And this, to me, is a massive, massive Rubicon that's been crossed because we will always see worldwide this blue line 
and whether it's in America with the Black Lives Matter, whether it's in South Africa with regards to policemen that have acted in a manner that's been prejudicial to members of the public. The police have always closed ranks and they've protected their own. And it now seems as if, judging by your statement, there's been this paradigm shift in thinking where the police themselves, at risk to themselves, are willing to out those that are bad. Do you think we're going to see momentum in this? It's such a flurry of claims and counterclaims. I'm certain something has got to give. I'm not sure when that something will give or even what that something is. And just looking back at the Western Cape in particular, we used to, um, President Nelson Mandela in the 1990s, I believe 1997, sent up a, set up a presidential unit to investigate organized crime suspects internationally as well as locally. And the lead investigator was Andre Lincoln. And he was then accused of crimes. And over the years, we've seen police investigators who are appointed to look into these critical alleged offenses then become accused of crime. So it's, I mean, it's, um, there's never really resolution. So General Lincoln was acquitted of the charges he faced at the time. And again, now as we speak, a suspect in a court case has accused him of orchestrating a hit. So it's all these cycles of claims against cop investigators. It's it's confusing, boggling, and obviously we're trapped under it. How do we set aside these narratives? How do we allow for the police and their support institutions to get along with the job of policing and investigating these serious claims without being distracted by these massive narratives that are being played out, which one can see is is designed specifically to try derail these investigations. Well, Chad, that's where I think it's important for um uh, for someone to actually connect the dots, because what we often see in the public domain is sort of fragments of the story or fragments of a court case. Um, as the court case unfolds, we'll hear so and so is accused of this, and then two days later we'll hear, but so and so said so and so didn't do this, and so and so set him up. I think it's utterly important to actually understand the nature of what's going on and to sit, to sit back and look at it as a big picture. And from, from that point, once we grasp what's happening, that basically empowers us to do something about it or to say, but hey, this has happened before. This is not right. So it's really about understanding a much bigger picture than you can convey in 1,000, 2,000 words. So the media plays a critical role, and we've heard in the past how different media houses have reported on different narratives. Are we still seeing this, or have the media taken a look at themselves and realized that they can't be played by these different camps who have different agendas? I think we are still seeing it. Yeah, and it's very difficult for me to answer that because, in a sense, I'm a working journalist and am part of the media. And what I can only do is really answer from my perspective. But it's very important to, instead of rushing the news, just rushing to get something out, if you can, wait, stop, look. Why is certain information being passed on? That is a critical question because... It's not easy to have something just fall in your lap. If someone is passing on information, question why. 
It's very true that. And, and like you said, take a breath. Everybody wants to be first out there to report on news. And with social media being so forefront in everybody's lives, people want to have that headline and perhaps they don't have the time to actually look at all the angles. And I think that's why it's so important to have organizations that actually look at a story over the medium to long term and not a short term headline. And, and we've seen that with the likes of Scorpio, Amabungane and others. Do you think we're going back to, to the days of, of looking for a long, properly investigated story rather than being reliant on 140 characters to tell us what's going on. I certainly and dearly hope so. So that is something we try and do at Daily Maverick, longer form journalism, not to say that we ignore breaking or big news, but I've sat in both seats, Chad. I used to work for hard breaking online news and it is very difficult to sort of apply your mind to something longer term when you're consistently and constantly bombarded with news. So there are different ways of telling the news, and I do hope that we sort of, not to say we can't have breaking news, but I do hope we veer towards more contextualized and considered news telling. We're learning a lot today from the author of To the Wolves, Karen Dolly. We'll be chatting to her again in a couple of minutes. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today I'm so fortunate to be joined on air by Karen Dolly, whose career I followed from the very beginning. And I've really enjoyed her writing over the years, starting with The Enforcers and moving now to her new book, To the Wolves, How Traitor Cops Crafted South Africa's Underworld. What has the reception been by um, your fellow journos and critics to the book, To the Wolves, Karen? Um, there hasn't been much, to be honest, Chad. I'm kind of hold up, um, isolated and not seeing many people face to face. And yeah, I think over the next few weeks, we'll start, or I'll start assessing that. Um, there has been some interest from within, or let me say, this rather, the fringes of the police service trying to find out what the book's about. But I think it's pretty self-explanatory. The title. I think that COVID has changed so much. I remember, and it was it was chilly, so it must have been this time of year or a little bit later into winter that you launched um, the enforcers in Johannesburg, and you had a magnificent turnout in Melville. There were a lot of your peers. There were a lot of people that were very interested in the subject. And now, of course, with COVID and everybody being remote, we we reliant on these virtual launches. Are there some virtual launches planned for To the Wolves? There should definitely be. The dates aren't available yet. But what I can tell you is that the book is available for pre-order on the Daily Maverick site. And in the coming weeks, we'll be announcing yeah, developments. Well, I'm excited for one. And I must be honest, I miss those those get-togethers with, with the journalists, with the investigators, with people such as yourself. And I remember that night as if it was yesterday. It was really a coming together of people that want to see a difference and understand the importance that the media plays in exposing these very, very important stories. Um, to the Wolves, did it come about purely as 
and, and this is how we started our conversation today, as a need to continue from where you left off from the enforcers, can we consider it a sequel or can it be read in isolation to the enforcers? It can definitely be read in isolation. And this book started out as me actually just typing up notes for myself to try and, and to try and make sense of so many different factions and claims and accusations. And it's very different to the first book in terms of how the process has gone in that I've written it first and then decided this could actually be a manuscript as opposed to the opposite being offered a deal and saying, would you like to write a book? So yeah. Was the process easier this time? It's so strange, Chad, because I wrote it sort of for myself at first and then shaped it, it has been much easier. It sounds incredible. And you know what? It's nice to be able to have somebody who's on the ground, who has met with the people that matter to write such a book. Because what we're seeing a lot of is research type um, papers being turned into books. And that, I don't believe, goes to the heart of it. And I'm really excited for the second book. And I'm really grateful that we have um, fearless investigative journalists and authors like you. So, Karen, thank you so much for your first book. And I'm really looking forward to reading this book, To the Wolves, How Traitor Cops Crafted South Africa's Underworld. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. Karen, please let us know when the virtual launches will be held. We'll update our listeners on the Confidential Brief radio show Facebook page and on our other social media. And we're really looking forward to seeing you. And you need to stay safe, stay warm during uh, the coming winter, especially with COVID still being so prevalent in all of our lives. Thank you. And same to all your listeners. Thank you. That was Karen Dolly. Her book, To the Wolves, How Traitor Cops Crafted South Africa's Underworld, is available for pre-order on the Daily Maverick website and will then be available at all good bookstores. I'll be keeping you, my listeners, up to date on where you can um, watch the virtual launch of these books. And, of course, what's amazing about those virtual launches is you are still able to ask questions, maybe not in person, but it's almost the same as being there. I'd like to thank you for listening. My name is Chad Thomas, and you've been listening to Confidential Brief.